You open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. I really appreciate what Joe said about Christianese and how sometimes we say something so frequently that it loses its meaning or it loses its punch. But the fact of the matter is, is that, as he also said, some of the most important things, some of the things that we take for granted are the things that we need to make sure we understand, things that we make sure we revisit over and over again. And such is the case with the study of the Gospels, particularly the study of parables. These are things that we know, and the reason why we know them, especially if we've grown up in church, is because we've heard them countless times. And the reason we've heard them countless times is because these are precisely the kinds of things that we tell children. So if we've been in the church for 20, 30, 50, 70 years, we've heard these parables over and over again. And that's their purpose. That's their value. But I think as we'll see this morning, we can look at them with fresh eyes, not with the intent of coming up with some new or novel interpretation, not with trying to do something that would shock the evangelical uh, scholarly journals with some sort of new take on it, but simply in a way that gets us to move, gets us to a way to live, to worship in, in, a, in a manner that may be fresh. So in Mark chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 26, and Jesus is speaking. He says, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? Himself. He does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he was saying, how shall we compare the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? Will you pray with me? Lord, this is your word. You have given it to us. And so this morning, allow us to receive it not by our natural minds, but by minds illuminated by your Holy Spirit. Whether this is the first time or by your grace, the hundredth time we've talked about this parable or heard this parable, I pray that you will use it to spur us in directions that you desire us to go as individuals, as families, and as a church, knowing that this is the blueprint for your kingdom. And for your kingdom's sake, And for your son, we pray. Amen. Imagine being a pessimistic farmer. Imagine what that would be like in the springtime. Imagine you had your bag of seed, or if, you know, it's 2023, you have your big hopper on the back of your equipment full of seed that you've paid all of this money for. Seed's not cheap, mind you. And you're going out to sow, and you're thinking, nothing is going to come of this. Now, I kind of feel that way sometimes when I plant in my garden. It's been years since we've had a garden, but one of the things that we used to enjoy doing is going to the hardware store, going to the the garden store, and allowing the children to pick out whatever they wanted because it's $1.99 for the little packet of seeds. And so living in New England, of course, it's a good idea to buy watermelon seeds. It's good to buy, you know, lemon tree seeds and things like that. Because it's in that day, it's worth $1.99, and they're going to forget about it come the end of summer. 
And so when it comes to those seeds, you plant them thinking nothing is going to happen. But for your tomatoes, for your peppers, for your squash, there is great expectation for those things to come up. And then you scale that out if you are farming corn or soybeans. And as you are driving that tractor, or if you're maybe a smaller operation and you are planting by hand, there is great anticipation for what is about to come. And so you plant those seeds, maybe a week after or a couple days after that last frost of the spring. We say that this morning on the first frost of winter. But back in that first frost, at that last frost of spring, you go out and you plant and you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you have great discouragement because there's not ripe ears of corn out in the field. Your, your world is shaken because there is not a soybean crop that you're going to be able to cash in on. You are despondent because there is not large prize-winning watermelon and trees ripe with citrus fruit. Imagine having that mindset. And the fact of the matter is, church, most of evangelicalism wakes up every morning looking around herself, thinking, nothing is happening in the world. God, send fire and brimstone. Let's start over. What a backwards way to look at what God is doing. What a bad way to interpret Scripture. Because what we are seeing, even in these texts, gives us the proper perspective on which we are to view not just the Bible, not just our lives, but the world that is around us. Because last week we talked about a parable, a well-known parable, a long parable, and a parable that we need to understand well because it communicates interesting things about salvation. But second to talking about or salvation is not the primary concept that the parable of the soils is talking about. And just like the parable of the seed that we read a moment ago, and like the parable of the mustard seed, as we'll read about in a minute, the purpose of this parable is about the gospel. It is about, the, is about salvation of individuals. But what Jesus says all three of these parables are about explicitly is the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Verse 11, we read last week in looking at the parable of the soils. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. As we just read a second ago, the parable of the seed in verse 26, and he was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed about in the soil. And as we also read in verse 30, as he was saying, how shall we compare the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? Christ is giving us clear teaching on the nature of the kingdom of God. He's giving parables of the kingdom of God. This is a concept that we don't talk about enough. And some of that comes from the fact that we are a highly individualistic society. When we talk about the gospel, the gospel certainly includes, and we ought to really focus on, as we talked about in this morning's catechism, the idea of personal salvation. That is a significant part of the gospel. But the gospel doesn't just include the salvation of individuals, it includes God's salvation of the world. And that is a significant aspect of the kingdom of God. It's very hard to, to articulate in a very concise way the kingdom of God. One simple way would be to say the reigning 
of God. And as we sang this morning, we, we all sang it, either you believe it or you don't believe the words you said, you will reign forever. And it's happening now. Where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The kingdom of God is Christ's reign, the Messiah's reign, the economy of God coming to fruition in all things. The late theologian and teacher R.C. Sproul wrote these words about the kingdom. He said, the New Testament indicates that the kingdom of God is both present and future. There is an already and a not yet to the kingdom. Both aspects must be understood and embraced by Christians to view the kingdom either as already totally realized or as totally futuristic is to do violence to the message of the New Testament. We serve a king who has already been enthroned, yet we await his triumphal return in glory when every knee will bow before him. What he says so articulately there is that the kingdom of God is something that has been inaugurated because Christ, at his ascension, has sat down at the right hand of the Father. But it is something that has not been consummated or come to fullness yet, because he has yet to return, and in doing so, put the last enemies to death under his feet. So it has already started. The reign, the kingdom, is breaking in, and it is continually breaking in more and more, as we'll see these parables explain, but it is something that has not happened fully. So it's important that we don't live in either extreme. We can't say that the kingdom is only total, totally future. And I think this is, again, this is the, the, the wrong end of the, or the wrong side of the road, the ditch that most of evangelicalism falls in, is that things are simply out of control and God is not in control. And we have to wait for some sort of moment in the future for things to get straightened out. That does, as Sproul wrote here, does violence to the clear teaching that Christ has been enthroned. That is contradictory to what we sang earlier. We'll see here in a moment that is completely perpendicular to Christ's teaching on the nature of the kingdom. It's also wrong to say that it's already completely happened, and this is as good as it's going to get. That also does violence, and it is contradictory to what God's word says. How do we know that Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father? Probably the most, the, the, the most poignant picture that we get comes from the Old Testament in anticipatory, prophetic words about Christ's being seated. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What Daniel sees, what Daniel anticipates, is not something that is going to be happening future. It is not something that we are waiting for the end times to happen. It is not something that we're waiting for some sort of millennial kingdom. It is not something that we're waiting for some sort of tribulation or rapture or anything else like that to bring about. And we can say that with great authority because something we recently studied as we went through the epistle of 1 Peter were these words. Peter writes this, talking in past tense. So Daniel was writing future tense. Peter is writing past tense. Jesus, he says in 1 Peter 3, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. 
those words we read in Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days and being enthroned are quoted often in the New Testament, and they are, often, and they are all quoted as something that has already happened. Daniel was anticipating it. The New Testament church saw that has already happened. Christ's kingdom began at his incarnation, but in a more fuller sense, at his ascension and as a sitting down at the right hand of God. But it is important to know that it is something that is growing, something that is coming in in more fullness, and something that will one day come in full consummation, at which point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is the nature of the kingdom of God. This is something that we have to see. It is repeated so frequently, particularly in, in, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In, in, in Mark and Luke, it's called the kingdom of God. In Matthew, he often says the kingdom of heaven. And this concept is one that is one of the most essential and key components of Jesus' teaching. And to, to not pay attention to it in this way and understand it in fullness is to do disservice to our study of Scripture even to the words of Christ himself. So these are the parables of the kingdom of God. And these two parables will, that we'll focus on this morning and what we talked about last week in the parable of the sower, they are Christ's way to articulate to his followers in the first century as well as us today and the church for all time the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, church, is an explicit and essential part of the gospel. So let's return to verses 26 through 29, the parable of the seed. The parable of the seed. So again, in verse 26, he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and the mature grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It's essentially saying, what, is, what does it say? The parable of the seed is that the farmer plants the seed and he goes to bed. And then the plant grows. Now, here we are, 2023. We understand what happens. I, we, in, in homeschool, we had this little project where these two plastic plates and we put a seed on a paper towel and we made the paper towel wet and we got to watch the seed do its thing and it was wonderful. But guess what? That seed didn't really produce anything significant. All you're really watching is the, the little sprout bust out of the seed. But that being said, you have fancy scientific cameras that go down into the dirt and can watch the entire thing happen, and they play in fast motion. So in 25 seconds on YouTube, you can watch a plant go from being a seed growing into a plant that produces fruit. So when it says in verse 27, and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know, that doesn't mean that this is now a parable that is completely unnecessary because now, us moderns, we know how seeds grow. Now, once again, we can't have that kind of chronological snobbery. We can't have that kind of, of, of short-sightedness to think that 2,000 years ago, there was never a farmer that said, what's going on down there? And he picked up the seed and he finds the seed with the sprout coming out of it. They knew how seeds worked. They understood the, the whole agricultural system. They may not have had the perfect grasp on photosynthesis. They might not have understood all those things, but they knew the essentials. 
So what is being said? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the farmer plays a part in this process, but the process is not dependent upon the farmer. The farmer plays a part in the process, but the process is not dependent upon the farmer. God uses us to sow the word. God uses us to cultivate the word. God uses us to grow the church. But ultimately, just as we're not down in the soil with a pair of tweezers prying apart the husk of that shell and then delicately pulling out that little nub so that it turns into, as it says, the blade, then the head, the mature grain. We're not unfolding the leaves off of the stock so that they can receive the sunlight. It does it on its own. It does it independent of us. Whether we are farming one little plant or tens of thousands of acres, it happens on its own. This parable means the kingdom's growth happens in a surprising way. It happens in a way that even if we were to stand and watch it, we can't make it happen, but it's going to happen. If we're standing there and watching it, then nothing might happen, but then we go to bed and we wake up and we realize something has happened. The nature of the the kingdom is that the growth happens in a surprising way. In Ecclesiastes, uh, the author there writes, He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the work of God who works all things. Sow your seed in the morning, Do not put your hands down in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. The author of Ecclesiastes there emphasizes to us that although we have control, although we have been given, in a sense, dominion on the earth, it's part of the creation mandate for us to cultivate and organize and keep and exercise that dominion, Still, so much of what we do, whether it be agricultural or whether it be procreative in in bringing about children, there's things that we can't control, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen on its own. It's going to happen because it is the nature of the world that God has created. How much more is it going to happen in his kingdom? A spiritual reality, something that is not tainted by sin, something that has not fallen, a seed that may not come to fruition is what we experience when we're here on earth. But at a spiritual level, his kingdom will come to fruition. The blade, the head, the stalk, the grain will come about. 19th century Protestant uh, teacher in Germany, Helmut Thielicke. Helmut is a good name if you're thinking about that for a child or maybe a fish. He wrote this. He said, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones that everything deemed to be ended, if I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening, and that everything was pressing on towards his last kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident, yes, than I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed. What he's saying is that if he had the mindset 
earlier in his life, when he saw death, when he saw disease, when he saw warfare, when he saw these things, that they were not happening outside of the sovereignty of God, but that concurrent with those things happening, God was increasing and growing his kingdom for a purpose, that he was moving things in a direction, drawing men to himself, bringing about reconciliations of peoples and of nations, that it would make these things be put in their proper perspective. You know, one of the dangers that we have, church, is using our experience and our emotions to determine reality. I've had this conversation with, with a number of people in the last few weeks because I think it's so important for us as students of the Word, as being informed by the Word, to, to remember this. Our criticism of this world for defining reality based upon feeling and based upon what it sees is rightfully criticized. It's rightfully wrong to say that how I feel determines reality or what I see determines reality. We do not want our children, the children of our families, the children of this church, children in general, to say, this is what is happening in culture, therefore, that must be real, that must be right, that must be true. We're right in criticizing that mentality. We use Scripture as our guide. We use Scripture as our, our, our northern point on the compass. The church needs to have the same mentality. Is God doing something? The answer is yes. It's an unequivocal yes. Jesus just said the kingdom of God is growing. It will become ripe. Something is happening. You might not see it. You might be sleeping. You might be hands off. But God is doing something. And we look at the news today, we look at our culture, we look at election results, we look at the Middle East, we look at just how bad things are, and we say, that is reality. This must be misinterpreted. What is true? What is right? Is it what we see with our eyes? Is it what we feel with our, our hearts that are prone to wander? Or is it the firm foundational word of God? You see this, and it's, it's understandable. It's understandable because we do it, but you see this is something that has happened throughout history where major world events shift theology. Major world events make people optimistic about what God's doing or make people pessimistic about what God is doing. And you see this, I mean, the amount of money that is, that is spent on books about prophecy, about the end time is tomorrow, or the end time is the next week, or the end time is a month from now, that's been something that's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. Church, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, the mature grain in the head. We don't know how it happens. We don't know when it happens. We just know that we're supposed to be diligent farmers. We're supposed to be diligent workers. We're supposed to be in the fields doing what we're doing and understanding and being confident that the grain is growing. And we work with that confidence. There will be hard days. As I just read this quote from, from Thielaki, those hard days are anticipatory of the harvest. 
those back-breaking hours in the field, the sweat of the brow, the, 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 the bruised knees, those things are anticipatory of a great harvest. The same is true for our work today. We understand that God is growing something and that we are just called to work. This is the parable of the seed. But continue, there's another parable. It gives another aspect of it. So the parable of seed talks about how the kingdom's growth happens in a surprising way. We know, this, we know the plant's going to grow up, but every time it happens, we get excited. Every time we have, oh, I thought it was going to be last week. Last year, it was when this tree was blooming. This week, it's when that tree is blooming. It's a surprise in the way it happens. Not a surprise that it happens, but a surprise in the way it's happened. This is the parable of the mustard seed. Go to verse 30. And he was saying, how we sh- shall we compare the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which... When sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes largest of all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the words of them, and they were able to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So we see a few things, church. The parable of the mustard seed. What does it say? This is a well-known one. The idea of faith like a mustard seed is a, is a, a well-known maxim in our culture today. Jesus is making a simple point. Mustard seed, very small seed. If you have ever used dry mustard, not the ground-up type, but the whole part, you know what it is. It's a teeny, tiny little ball. But when you plant this thing, and this week I did this, I actually did this because I always read this parable and I think, I wonder how big mustard trees get. They get like nine or ten feet tall. There you go. Maybe taller if you are in the right climate. Maybe shorter if it's New England, as is the case. But does that mean that this is the smallest tree, the smallest seed? No, there's smaller seeds out there. Does it mean there's larger trees? Yes, there's larger trees. The point that Jesus is making is one of a significant change in size. Something from very small gets to be very big. Now think about how encouraging this would have been for the apostles. Jesus is talking about this kingdom. Jesus is talking about this amazing thing that's going to happen. And it's him and 12 guys, and that's it. That's all. That's the seed. It's Christ and his 12 apostles. It's Jesus and a ragtag group of zealots and and fishermen and tax collectors, and one who's going to betray him. But he says, it starts out small, and it's going to grow. And here's the amazing thing, church. We don't even need to anticipate what's going to happen in the future to see how this has come to fruition. We see it even in the testimony of Scripture itself. We don't even have to get a third of the way through the book of Acts to see how this is happening. Jesus is Jesus comes as that core of that seed, that nucleus of that seed, that, 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 that kernel of that seed. And then he gets his 12 and then his 70. And then you have the upper room and then you have at Pentecost it blowing out into thousands. And by the time the New Testament canon is completed, you have churches across the Roman Empire. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, literally halfway around the world, And we can drive in any direction and run into a gospel-preaching church within 25 minutes. 
what started off as a small seed of 13 guys stopping on the side of a lake to talk about the kingdom of heaven has come to fruition. This is what it's saying. What it means is that the kingdom's growth will be tremendous. More of that myopia, that, that, that small, narrow way of thinking that we have is, yeah, God's grown it to this, this level. The, the gospel's booming in the, in the global south. You know, the, we, we, we have a, a, a the, the superpowers of the world are founded upon a Judeo-Christian worldview. But now it's going to tank. He's done this much, but now it's going to hit a precipice. The tree is, there must be a, a textual variant in there where the tree is going to have to fall apart. And that's when God's going to have to come and fix things. Again, are we using God's word as our rubric? Are we using God's word as a litmus test? Are we using God's word as the stabilizing factor for all of reality? Or are we using our hearts and the newspapers and the fear that so easily creeps in? The parable of the mustard seed is illustrative of the clear fact that Christ's reign is increasing and he is putting his enemies, as we read back in Daniel, as Psalm 110 makes so clear, as Psalm 2 elaborates upon, he's putting all things under his feet. Psalm 2 makes that wonderful statement that kiss the son, lest he be kindled in his wrath against thee. It's a a good psalm to read in King James English. This is what Christ is doing. This is what his kingdom is doing. But to make the point even even finer, look at what we see in verse 32. So the the seed is planted in verse 31, smallest seed, and it grows in verse 32, the largest plant. But notice the second half of verse 32. It's the largest of the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Why is that significant? This is a phrase that's used numerous times in the Old Testament. And as is the case, if this is one cohesive word of God, we shouldn't be surprised that there's explicit quotations and countless allusions to what the word of God says in the Old Testament to what the word of God says in the New Testament. It's all inspired the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit and the Son and the Father work simultaneously and inseparably. And so by Christ saying these words, and by his, his, his first century Jewish audience hearing these words, then their minds would be snapped back to what they would have been learning in the synagogue, what they have been reading in their Torah, and what those that were more religiously astute would have been hearing from the rabbis. Here's one example of where we see this language. In Ezekiel chapter 17, in anticipating the new covenant, the covenant that would be coming in and bring to fulfillment what had been promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of this new covenant. A covenant that had been broken by Israel, but that God was standing firm to in his loving kindness. What we see in Ezekiel is Ezekiel promising a downtrodden Israel, a downtrodden Judah, what would be coming. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will put on his head. I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. 
Then I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there regarding the unfaithful act which he has committed against me. All the choice men and his troops will fall by the sword and the remnant will be scattered to every wind and you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken. So what he's saying in Ezekiel chapter 17 is that he is going to punish Israel for her unfaithfulness and they're going to be scattered to the wind. They're going to be spread all over. They're going to Assyria, going to Babylon, being carted up even to Rome and down to Africa. And then it continues, Thus says Lord Yahweh, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on an exalted and lofty mountain. Now hear this, church. On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it that it may lift up boughs and yield fruit and become a majestic cedar, and the birds of every kind will dwell under it. They will dwell in the shade of its branches. And all the trees of the field will know that I am Yahweh. I bring down the exalted tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it. In the midst of apostasy and rejection of the truth of God's word, even though God is punishing Israel, he promises that there will be a remnant. And from that remnant, he will draw a tiny sprig, a little branch off of this remnant, and he will plant it on his mountain. And then this tree will grow. And this tree will grow to be the most powerful tree such that all the birds of every kind will come. In, in, in Daniel, where he uses the same language, he says, all the birds of every nation will come and dwell under it. This branch, coming from the smallest nation, the most persecuted nation, the most, I think you could make the argument here, the most, most unfaithful nation, this branch will grow in a mountain such that it has prominence that all the kinds of birds, all of the nations, all of the Gentiles will come and rest in its shade. What was anticipated in Ezekiel, what Christ is referencing here in Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the mustard seed, is that his kingdom is one that is coming from an, an ignoble roots in the sense that is coming from unfaithful Israel, but it is being planted and it is growing into something that transcends Israel, transcends Judah, transcends the Middle East, transcends one ethnicity, transcends one time, and consequently, as he says, the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The Gentiles, the nations will come. And once more, we don't have to wait for some future time to see the fulfillment of this prophecy because I look across this room and although shades of skin is not necessarily a perfect indicator of where we come from and our forefathers come from, I know our ethnicities, I know where we came from, and we, just like every other church you go to practically in the United States, you see a melting pot of people, and it is indicative of the fact that the Gentiles, the nations, all are coming to rest in the beautiful tree, that lofty cedar that is the church and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Church, we don't have to anticipate is it going to continue to happen? Yes. Why? Because for 2,000 years it has happened. There is no promise that this tree is going to break. There is no promise, going back to the previous parable, that, that, the, that the, the, the grain is going to be crushed. 
All that we're anticipating is more birds coming and more harvest happening. This is the clear teaching of the word of Jesus Christ. Does that mean everything is easy? Does that mean everything is perfect? Does that mean that the road is paved in a way that we don't have to look out for ruts and roots and potholes? No. But once again, is it our eyes and is it our hearts that we use as the, 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 the standard? No, it's the word of God. There have, just as there were in Israel in, in the time of Ezekiel, and just like there was in, in, in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, there were as a faithful remnant that God continued to bless. Such is the case for countless nations and countless churches for the past 2,000 years. The United States of America has not been written to this book, nor has any other contemporary nation. No matter how many charts you fold out of your, your books about the end times, there is no guarantee that we're going to be there or that they're going to be there. The only thing that is certain is that God's kingdom is going to be there. That is the only thing that is sure. That is the only thing that is certain. How does Jesus' teaching on the kingdom impact our worship and ministry? Ultimately, I think that's what matters the most, church. These are the things that we're going to talk about as we conclude this morning. How does Jesus' teaching on the kingdom impact our worship and ministry? Or how does it impact our life? Because we've seen these two parables, three if you include going back to last week. The parable of the seed, the fact that the kingdom is going to come in a surprising way. The parable of the mustard seed, the fact that the kingdom is coming in a way that is continuing to grow in a tremendous manner. How does this impact our worship, our ministry, and our life? First and foremost, we hope and we trust. The kingdom of God, Christ's clear teaching on the kingdom, means that we hope and we trust. We are not in a worse situation than the early church. You look at virtually every church in the New Testament. You look at all of Paul's epistles. You look at the epistles to the churches in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, and they all were struggling in one way, shape, or form. We actually have it really, really good. So, but we can look to them for when we struggle. If we feel like we are not hoping, if we feel like we're not trusting, we can look to God's words to them. This is what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He says that he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, there, I think that's important to say, the eyes of our heart, not necessarily our eyes or our heart, but the eyes of our heart being enlightened by God's word, will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his might and his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in heavenly places? One more example of the New Testament authors talking about the seating and this reign already happening and that Christ has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and that every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As I started this morning and talked about how we have churchy language, 
That is a passage that is six verses just full of churchy language about the supremacy of Christ, about how Christ is reigning, about Christ is reigning, about how we ought to be encouraged, about how our eyes and our hearts are to be enlightened. It's six verses chock full of church language that sometimes just washes over us. But the intention of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians and the intention of the Holy Spirit of us having this today, church, is so that we will not be discouraged because the same God who brought Christ back from the dead, the same Christ who ascended at his right hand, the same, that same Christ, as it says here, has been given to us as our head. He has given to us for our all in all. All things has been given to the church through him. That is our standard bearer. That is our hope. He is our hope. We fix our gaze firmly upon Christ, not on the news, not on our emotions, nothing like that. Christ is the lens by which we interpret what we feel and what we see. We hope and we trust. And we communicate this. We communicate this in, in our conversation with one another. That doesn't mean that when the stock market takes a turn that we don't comment on how it's rough. That doesn't mean when we have had auto mechanic problems after, after car problem after car problem that we don't talk about that and we are discouraged by that. It doesn't mean that we see geopolitical events happening in Eastern Europe or happening in the Middle East and we aren't troubled by that. It's just that we establish a priority. Who is reigning? Is it oligarchs in Russia or is it Christ? Is it, is, it, is it some sheik in the Middle East or is it Christ? Is it the United States or is it Christ? This needs to be our set of priorities. And who's been given to us? Yes, we have these lesser magistrates in our country. We have these lesser magistrates in our, in our, in our, our localities that we submit to. But Christ has been given to us for our fullness. This Tuesday or a Tuesday in November of next year is not going to determine our eternal hope. Our eternal hope is found in the one who's been given to us as head over all things. Doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't stand outside with a sign if we even feel that is, is worthwhile doing. Because the kingdom of God, again, is not only spiritual, it has an impact here on the world. But our ultimate hope is in Christ. So we hope and we trust. That's one way in which Jesus' teaching on the kingdom impacts our worship and ministry. It also, and this one might run a little counterintuitive if you've grown up in the evangelical church, Jesus' teaching and impact on our worship and ministry means that we build and we fight. We build and fight. When I say fight, I do not mean take up arms, although there's circumstances that allow for it, but that's for a different sermon. I say we fight what I mean by that is that we fight the battles that need to be fought. We stand up against untrue things with the truth. That is a fight in church. That is a fight that is often much more difficult to fight. And the tolls are often much more costly than fights that are fought with fists and with swords. But we fight. And we build things. We build things for our families. We build things for our church. We build things for our community. God bless those men and women in generations past who thought to do that, who didn't live like, like, like the end of all things was tomorrow. How much of the beautiful music 
and the beautiful pieces of artwork and the beautiful architecture and all of the things that we look back to, the beautiful volumes on theology for that matter, were composed by men and women who were in ages past anticipating the things that they, let, that they laid down to be used by their children and their children's children to a thousand generations. We build things. We don't live like it's disposable, whether it's our planet or whether it's the things that the Lord has entrusted to us. We build so that there may be something to leave for our children because we trust that God is going to do something, whether it's a generation or a thousand generations. In Nehemiah, a book we don't often go to, but an important book, both Ezra and Nehemiah, In Nehemiah chapter 4, it says this, It happened that when our enemies had heard that it was known to us that God had thwarted their counsel, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And it happened that from that day on, half of the young men carried on the work, while half of them took hold of the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the commanders were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load on one hand, while those doing the work of the other were holding a weapon. Again, we're not building a wall around us. We're not doing that sort of work. But the same mentality ought to be in our head and our our heart. Charles Spurgeon created a newsletter back when he was in ministry, and it was called The Sword and the Trowel. And it was for this same reason. We are to fight spiritual battles, and we are to build things. Just like the men of Nehemiah's day were building a, a, a wall for the, re, the rebuilt Jerusalem, but they were also in the business of defending it against the onslaught of the neighboring nations that were trying to tear that wall down. Our work is to build up the church. It is to build up our families. It is to build up our community. And it is to be quick to lay down a brick, but it's also quick with the sword of truth to turn around and fight the lies of the day. Jesus' teaching on the kingdom impacts our worship and ministry because it spurs us on to build and to fight. And finally, church, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom impacts our worship and ministry because it teaches us to love God as we love others. We love God and we love others. We can't do this alone. The kingdom is not your heart. The kingdom is not asking Jesus to be your personal savior. The kingdom is a collection of people who God is working with and in to be a part of his kingdom. But he is bringing it on, as these these parables say, in ways that are surprising, in ways that are tremendous. It's never just going to be you. It's never even just going to be your family. It's never going to just be our church. It is a much greater thing. And so as we love others, we love God rightly. Psalm 145 says, All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you, and your holy ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. Instead of running and hiding and cowering, Instead of cloistering ourselves at our compound in the woods and hiding away our children from the world, we ought to be known as a church. We ought to be known as families. We ought to be known as people who speak of the glory of his kingdom and talk of his might, making known to the sons of men, our friends, our family, our neighbor, a watching world, 
his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom because every kingdom of this world, church, is going to come up short. And people know that. People understand that. So what we give people by understanding these parables, by understanding the kingdom, by understanding our role in it, by understanding that we ought to hope and we ought to trust, that we're understanding that we ought to fight and build, by understanding that we love God and love others, is we are communicating to ourselves, to our family, to our church, to our community, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's not a hard left turn to go to the Lord's Supper from here, church. This is the consequence of what we have just talked about. This is the implication of what we talked about. And so as, as the musicians come forward and, we, and they play, we'll ask you to come and receive the elements. And although there's a somber aspect to the taking of the bread and a taking of the wine, there's also a triumph because the same Christ who said, this is my flesh and this is my blood in anticipation of his, his trial, his humiliation, his crucifixion, is the same Christ that anticipated his resurrection and was well aware of his ascension. We are partaking in the supper of the risen and reigning king. And he will one day take the supper with us in a more full and more beautiful way in his kingdom as it has come to fullness. We can think about that this morning as we hold these things. Let's pray. Lord, this world is filled with toil. It's filled with work. It's filled with disappointment and hardship and death and disease. It's filled with hard news, sad news, devastating news. But this world is fleeting. Your kingdom is eternal. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are hearts after your own heart. Lord, I pray that we will hope and trust in you. Not a hope that is some sort of nebulous wish, but a hope that is founded upon promises that have already come to pass and are continuing to come to pass. Lord, let us build and fight, not for the sake of our honor, but for your honor, knowing that the things that we do, the legacies that we leave are not our own, but are for you, so that our children and our grandchildren and their children, if it be your will, will come under this blessed covenant that was inaugurated in your son. Let us do all things, loving him, sharing his beauty, being free in our affections towards him, to all we come across. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.